We've all heard the expression, don't hate the player, hate the game. And we frequently use it on this podcast. But what exactly does that mean in a healthcare context? We're discussing that today from Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net. This is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from flatlining.net. The phrase, don't hate the player, hate the game, applies to many situations. In healthcare, insurance companies are playing the game according to the rules they have, and they're making record profits. We showed this uh, in a previous episode when we discussed payer issues. Now, do we hate the insurance companies, or do we hate the game that they're forced to play which maximizes their shareholders' investments. The system we have now incentivizes payers to make life miserable for the 5% of healthcare consumers who account for 50% of all healthcare spending. They use tools like prior authorization, pre-certification, fail-first pharmacy, and more, all to try to make expensive members go somewhere else. What if we change this system? In this podcast short, Ron explores what we might be able to do to change the rules of the game and move payers' focus off shedding expensive members and onto efficiently caring for them. Recently, there's been a great deal of anger aimed at insurance companies, largely driven by their incredible increase in profits during this pandemic. Now, people who paint the insurance executives as greedy and heartless are missing a big part of the problem. The insurance CEOs are just doing their job. They're doing what they're paid to do, and to do anything else, in some ways would violate the trust their shareholders have placed in them. At this point, I feel like I should take a pause and make something perfectly clear. I am not defending insurance companies or their CEOs. Far from it. What I'm doing is pointing out the inherent flaw in the system. Until we change the structure of what insurance companies do and how they make their money, we're never going to fix the root problem. Until then, it's just like we're getting angry at the fever and ignoring the virus causing it. Let me explain. The purpose for any for-profit company is to maximize the investment of the shareholders. Hard stop. In a capitalistic economy, that is their job. Now, in most industries, the best way to maximize the shareholders' investment is to build a better product or produce a better service. In those industries, the incentive of the CEO is also aligned with the benefits of the consumer. Consider this for example. In 2019, Apple produced gross profits of $98 billion. Amazon had gross profits of $149 billion. United Healthcare in that same year had a very good year, and they produced profits of $14 billion. Wait. So why are people getting angry with United when Amazon made 10 times the profit they did? Well, it's because of what UHC had to do to make that money. You see, we don't care about the profits of Apple or Amazon because, well, my iPhone is really cool and it works really well. And it's kind of great to get toilet paper delivered to my door the same day I ordered it. 
United and every other insurance company catches heat because of the perverse incentives involved with health insurance that create the environment where what's good for United's profits are often bad for their consumers or at least some of their consumers. What makes it worse in this situation is those consumers in question are sick. The problem is the system, and it's one that we can and should fix. The world of health insurance is unlike any other market. First of all, the consumer of your service, in most cases, is not the purchaser of your service. The employer is the actual purchaser of the service, but the patient is the consumer. This creates a problem because the purchaser isn't benefiting from the purchase. And because of that, they're much more interested in just reducing cost than anything else. Think about it this way. I'm a car guy. I love cars. Now, I am likely to pay more for a great car than most other people would. But it doesn't bother me because I get the enjoyment of driving that car. Now, this would change dramatically if I had to buy a car for somebody else. If I had to buy a car that I don't get to drive. In that case, I want the cheapest car I can find. I don't care if it's not very nice. I don't care if it's not very safe. And to be honest with you, I don't even care if it doesn't run that well because it's not my car. All I'm doing in this situation is stroking a check, and that brings me no joy or value. Well, that's how healthcare works. Healthcare is also different in that the insurance is provided to everybody, but really very few people actually use more in services than the cost of the insurance. The market's very skewed. We know that 5% of the people account for half of all the healthcare costs. We also know that half the people consume less than 5% of the costs. So, we pay into the insurance for everybody, but really very few people use the insurance to a great degree. But for those people, the costs are very high. This creates very strange financial incentives and disincentives for insurance companies that are often called adverse selection. Think of it this way. If an insurance company could figure out a way to get the most expensive 5% of their members to leave and go to one of their competitors well, that would reduce their expenses by 50%, but only reduce their revenue by 5%. Now, it doesn't take a Harvard MBA to know that any company that can cut expenses by 50% and only experience a 5% reduction in revenues because of it becomes incredibly profitable. The other incentive that they have is to not attract these sick patients in the first place. The challenge for an insurance company in this situation is how to accomplish this goal, that goal of getting rid of sick patients and not attracting them in the first place. Unfortunately, there is a way to keep some of these very sick patients from joining your insurance company while also getting some of those who are already members to leave and go to a competitor's plan. The reason this can be done is because most of these expensive patients are chronically ill with diseases like MS that are lifelong. Another similarity amongst these members is they typically use one or more very expensive medications and require regular and frequent care. So, if you want to avoid these patients in the first place and to get the ones you already have to leave, the best strategy is to make their lives difficult. Pairs do this with a whole tool chest of strategies. Prior authorization, utilization management, pharmacy formularies, fail-first medication policies, pre-certification requirements, the list goes on and on. Each of these tools is designed to either deny, delay, 
or change the care the patient's doctor has prescribed and the patient needs. Doing this helps to control medical expense, and more importantly, it can build a reputation for that payer of being difficult to deal with. In this day and age of social media, virtual support groups, and real-time communication, it's easy to see how quickly something like, oh, I don't know, the MS community could spread the word that one payer is very difficult to deal with, but another has a much easier process for getting the latest and greatest drug. Unfortunately, this kind of communication and payer switching creates an environment that forces every payer to play the game in a never-ending process of not wanting to be patient-friendly, which would attract too many of these chronically ill patients. That's adverse selection. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, well, that wouldn't happen. Wouldn't the employer get angry? Well, some may, but most won't. Remember, the employer is just paying the bills. They aren't the one with MS receiving the services. Besides, the payers have become very good at showing corporate CFOs just how much money these activities save. They have convinced the employers that without this kind of heavy-handed utilization management, costs would skyrocket, and doctors would just start spending money like a drunk kid on spring break. The problem is that's not true. It's just not true. A Peterson KFF study showed that over the last 10 years, private insurance spending on a per-enrolling basis has grown much faster than Medicare and Medicaid spending. Wait, that's not what they're telling employers. They're telling employers that all of these UM activities are holding down costs. So why would Medicare and Medicaid, which are largely devoid of these tactics, grow at a slower pace? Well, the answer is that these payer strategies are really designed to aggravate the chronically ill to either not choose a specific payer and or leave that payer for one that's more reasonable. Further, many of these actions which delay care also cause unnecessary care and as such are actually increasing costs. Take some of the fail-first pharmacy protocols, for example. These make a doctor try a drug that they know isn't going to work and that once that drug fails, they can try the drug they needed all along. Another example is the situation where a patient is stable on one medication and then switches carriers. The new carrier often won't approve the medication that's been working for the patient and makes them start over on some other cheaper medication only to switch them to the medication they need after that first medication fails. Now, it's easy to see how this kind of process for something like, say, migraines, could lead to unnecessary doctor visits or even trips to the ER. As the patient goes from a situation where, they, where their condition has been well-managed and stable to one where they're back to square one with something they know won't work. Again, given the payer's mission to maximize shareholders' investment, none of this should come as a surprise. It also won't be fixed until we fix the underlying systemic issues driving this behavior. While moving to a single-payer Medicare-for-all kind of approach would solve this problem, it's likely to be a bridge too far. Medicare-for-all will be very difficult to achieve and way too easy for detractors to shoot down. In addition, it creates significant issues around provider compensation levels and tax realities that would need to be solved in order to make sure the cure isn't worse than the disease. So, if Medicare-for-all isn't possible, how do we fix this? Well, the answer lies in understanding the incentives and removing those incentives that produce bad behavior while keeping those that produce the behaviors we're looking for. In the case of health insurance, it means getting rid of the payer's abilities to do all the things we don't like. Get rid of prior auth, pharmacy formularies, fail-first drug policies, etc. 
get rid of the whole tool chest of UM actions that not only drive physicians crazy, but increase administrative cost and delay needed care for patients. You get rid of all these by creating a national coverage policy and guideline set. If a drug or service is medically necessary, it should be medically necessary for everyone with the same condition. It shouldn't be available for some patients with some insurance companies and then not others. Once you create these national coverage policies, you make it illegal for any insurance to delay or deny care that is covered by one of these policies. In addition, you would need to create an exception process where doctors could request exceptions to policies based on valid clinical evidence. These exceptions would be reviewed by peer physicians without the financial incentive to inappropriately deny care. Since all carriers would be playing under the same rules, none of them would be disadvantaged. Also, since we're no longer spending their time and energy trying to compete on who could be the hardest plan to deal with for MS patients, they could devote their energy to competing on things we want them to compete on. Things like claims payment timeliness and accuracy, efficiency and administrative cost, additional benefits and wellness programs. You know, the things that actually benefit the consumer. All right, at this point, I can almost hear the cries of the detractors. This will increase cost. We can't afford this kind of open checkbook approach. Well, in addition to the previous data about private insurance spending increasing faster than Medicare, I would ask you to consider the following. It has been estimated that the administrative burden of prior authorization activities costs the U.S. healthcare system between 23 and $31 billion annually. That's 20 to $30 billion we could use on, oh, I don't know, some actual healthcare. Rather than the never-ending cycle of mother may I between your doctor and your insurance company. So, before you get angry about the latest earnings report from some for-profit insurance company, try to understand that they're just playing the game we created. We can get angry at them all you want, but it won't change until you change the rules of the game. Now is the time to do that, and doing so will not only help us reduce cost, but it will go a long way to helping patients get the care and treatment they actually need without having to jump through all those hoops I mean, isn't it bad enough if you have one of these diseases? You shouldn't have to run the insurance company utilization management gauntlet in addition to dealing with your illness. Thanks for listening to this Flatlining Podcast Short. I'm Matthew Hamley from Flatlining.net, and be sure to sign up for my weekly e-newsletter at Flatlining.net. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2022. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and many more. For Ron Howard and I'm Matthew Handley. Have a great week.